listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our scripture reading is from Hebrews 9, verses 1 to 15 and verse 22. I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly sanctuary. For a tent was constructed, the first one, in which were the lampstand, the table, and the bread of the presence. This is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a tent called the Holy of Holies. In it stood the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which there was a golden urn, holding the manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak now in detail. Such preparations having been made, the priests go continually into the first tent to carry out their ritual duties. But only the high priest goes into the second, and he but once a year and not without taking the blood that he offers for himself and for the sins committed unintentionally by the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the sanctuary has not yet been disclosed as long as the first tent is still standing. This is a symbol of the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various baptisms regulations for the body imposed until the time comes to set things right. But when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls with the sprinkling of ashes of a heifer sanctifies those who have been defiled so that their flesh is purified, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God? For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance because a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions under the first covenant. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. Thank you for that reading, Alicia. Uh, Boy, that that was a mouthful, wasn't it? Uh, Hopefully you're all able to follow along with that at home. Uh, And if not... It should all become clear soon, right? You know, hopefully. Fingers, fingers crossed. This is the very last entry in our Metaphors of the Cross series. Throughout this season of Lent, we have been exploring uh, various ways that Christians in ages past have explained and thought about the cross, asking the key question, why did Jesus have to die? How does the death of one man uh, save humanity from sin? What are, what are the mechanics involved in the cross? How does it all work? And perhaps most importantly, why would God use such a violent and terrible means to liberate us all from death? Now, we have looked at a bunch of different metaphors in this series. We talked about 
Jesus as a ransom, Jesus as the victor, Jesus as new humanity, an example. If you missed any of the previous entries in this series, I want to encourage you to please go on the sermon page on our website where you will find all of our past teachings and you can get caught up there. But today we are landing on the big one, Jesus the sacrifice. This is the metaphor that we're probably all familiar with. Uh, it's the one that I'm betting we're the most well-versed in, and it's the idea that Jesus is a sacrifice whose death releases us from the debt of sin, setting us right with God once and for all. If we look at the New Testament, uh, you're going to find sacrificial language about the cross all over the place. One of the most frequent metaphors from their own Bibles, from the Hebrew Scriptures that the New Testament authors used when they talked about the cross is the idea of a sacrifice. To show you some examples, in his letter to the churches in Rome, Paul writes the following, Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are now justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood effective through faith. There you go, sacrificial language for you right there in that passage. Then again, uh, in Ephesians 5, Paul writes, that we should be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There you have it again. Even if we move away from Paul, though, of going to a passage like 1 John chapter 2, we read this. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And of course, we also have a book like Hebrews, uh, where our scripture reading comes from uh, for today, where the sacrificial language is even more pronounced, even further developed and applied to Jesus. And we'll get into that in a, in a few minutes. These are just a few of the many examples in the New Testament where sacrificial language is used to talk about the cross the death of Jesus, and how it saves us. Now here's something interesting, though. We find all this sacrificial language in the Bible, and yet when we look at the writings of the early church, when we look at how you know Christians in the first few centuries of church history thought about and understood the cross, sacrifice is actually not the primary metaphor, the primary image that they used, oddly enough. Now, of course, you do find sacrificial language sprinkled here and there, figures like Augustine, Athanasius, Irenaeus, all these intellectual heavyweights of the early church that we've touched on here and there throughout this series, they're definitely aware of the sacrificial nature of the cross, and they do make mention of it at point. But the primary metaphors that they stick with when they talk about the cross and how it saves us, when they talk about the death of Jesus, are all those earlier metaphors from this series. The cross as Jesus' victory over death. Or as a ransom that's paid by God to the devil, to get the devil to release us from his grips. Uh, Jesus is the new humanity who takes the entirety of our existence with him to the cross and then redeems it all through the resurrection. Those are the dominant metaphors of the cross that we find in the early church. It's not really until we get into the second millennium of church history, like the, the 1100s AD and beyond, that the metaphor of sacrifice really re-emerges in force and becomes the primary way Christians think about and talk about the crucifixion. And the person who shifted that focus was Anselm of Canterbury. 
Anselm was a Catholic monk who became Archbishop of Canterbury in the year 1093. If you've ever heard of the Canterbury Tales, that story uh, about a bunch of people on a pilgrimage to Canterbury, that's the same Canterbury Anselm was Archbishop of. Right at the turn of the 12th century in the year 1098, Anselm published a book called Why God Became Human, uh, Cur Deus Homo in uh, Latin, where he put forward his understanding of the cross. And in a pretty brilliant move for the time, Anselm took the idea of sacrifice from the Old Testament and he merged it with the feudal system of medieval Europe. This was the Dark Ages after all, so like honor and class and social ranking, that was everything. All of life was structured as this hierarchy where you had a king at the top followed by other nobility, princes, dukes, things like that. Then you had your, your counts your lords under that, then your knights, various social rankings in descending order, usually based on how much land a person controlled. And it went all the way down to peasants, serfs, the common folk, people like you and me, all right? Um, and the way Anselm described it, God is the king and we're just peasants. We are peasants who have wronged the king. Human beings, through our sin and our failures, we've brought dishonor to God. And there's no possible way we can make things right. God is the king, after all, the, the one at the very top of the social ladder. And we're just serfs. We're peons. We're at the bottom of the bottom. And there is nothing we could offer God to make ourselves right. Luckily, though, we have a feudal Lord in Jesus. He's our, our duke or our prince, someone of higher social rank than ourselves, who stands between us and God and pays the debt that we owe. And Jesus pays that debt by sacrificing his own life to restore God's honor. Do you see how this like brings together sacrifice in the Old Testament with, with the reality of life in medieval Europe? Does that make sense? It's a pretty brilliant move, actually. But then from there, in the centuries after Anselm, especially as we get into like the 1500s, the 1600s, the years of the Protestant Reformation, this understanding of sacrifice and its connection to a medieval courtroom setting stuck. And it became the backbone of the theology of a lot of great Protestant thinkers like Martin Luther and John Calvin. Jesus' death as a sacrifice came to be viewed almost exclusively through the lens of crime and punishment in the Dark Ages. Where, like, human beings are deserving of death, we've broken the laws of the universe, and a penalty has to be paid. Someone has to be punished to satisfy God's anger. Someone's gotta die to fix this. And how does a sacrifice work? Well, everyone knows the answer to that, right? You, you take your sin and you transfer it to some sort of an animal. Then that animal is killed, taking the punishment for your sin, dying in your place to appease God's wrath. And Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. He's the eternal sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world and satisfies God's anger once and for all. This is the core of a lot of Protestant theology. If you've, if you've ever re read like a, a gospel tract, one of those little pamphlets that some Christians will hand out to strangers to try to convert them, that's usually the message we get. That's how the cross and how, really, our salvation is almost always understood. But there are a few problems with this perspective. 
And we've been touching on some of those throughout this series. For one, it's just incredibly violent. And we are a lot more sensitive to violence today uh, here in the 21st century than people were in the Dark Ages when, when terrible acts of violence were just a, a way of life. What does it say about God that God would require an act of violence to forgive sin? How is it okay, how is it just for something innocent, whether it's a, a lamb or a goat or the Son of God himself, how is it, how is it moral for an innocent victim to die in the place of of someone who's guilty. How is that just? And is that a picture of God that we can live with today? In recent years, some critics of the church have even begun charging God with divine child abuse. You hear things like, um, what kind of a God would require his own son to die in such a terrible and violent way just to purge God's own anger? Who would do that? No loving parent would do that. And in fact, there's a growing number of people out there who believe that a God like that just isn't worth following. A God who would require us to take our sin, transfer it to an innocent creature, and then kill that creature to set things right. Here's the thing, though. That's not how sacrifices in the Old Testament actually works. You know there's got to be there's got to be a turn, there's got to be a rub, right? It's coming. Here it is. That's not how Old Testament sacrifice worked at all. You know, Anselm and Calvin, God bless them, they were absolutely brilliant theologians, incredible leaders in the church. They took this ancient Old Testament idea of sacrifice and they translated it. They put it into language that the people of their churches could understand and thank God they did that. But they got Old Testament sacrifices all wrong. Go back and read the opening chapters of Leviticus sometime, which actually talk about animal sacrifice. Or better yet, talk to any Jewish person who actually knows their scriptures. The idea that you transfer your guilt to an animal and then kill that animal to appease the wrath of God, that is totally foreign to the religion of the Old Testament. That's not how sacrifice works. Now, Importantly, that is how Israel's neighbors understood sacrifice. All the, all the idolatrous nations, whether they were followers of Baal or Asherah, all those rival gods in the Old Testament, when their followers got together to offer sacrifice, yes, it was all about trying to appease the gods. Uh, you, you go to greater and greater lengths, bigger and bigger sacrifices, even sacrificing your own children in some instances, just to make sure that the gods weren't angry with you. But that's not how the Jewish sacrificial system worked at all. The Israelites understood sacrifice as a gift, a sign of thanksgiving, a, a shared meal between human beings and God. You'd bring a choice animal from your flock to the temple. Maybe it was a bull or a lamb or some goats, the kind of animals that you would save for special occasions, right? Because, because remember, Meat was a rare treat back then. You, you didn't eat meat every day or even most days. You couldn't just walk into Wegmans and pick up a steak like you do now. No, you would save the best animal from your flock. You would take that one to the temple and then the priest would slaughter it. Because remember, back then, your pastor was also your butcher, okay? That's, that's just how it worked a very long time ago. But the animal would be prepared and cooked 
the blood of the animal will be sprinkled on you and on the altar and on the priest. And then the fattiest, best piece of meat would usually be burned as an offering to God. That was God's part of the meal. And then you, your family, the priest, all the other pilgrims who would also come to offer their sacrifices, you would all sit down together and enjoy a celebratory meal together right there in the temple in the presence of God. <clears throat> That's how sacrifices worked in the Old Testament. Now, yes, there were times if you, if you messed up and committed some, some grievous sin, there were times when a sacrifice would be appropriate as, as one means of cleansing your conscience and, and purifying yourself before God, setting things right. But that's just one type of sacrifice. The, the Old Testament describes all sorts of different sacrifices. At the birth of a child, the parents would present a sacrifice to God, both to, to celebrate this new life coming into the world and also to cleanse themselves from the birthing process. When someone from your family passed away and you had to handle the body, you would offer a sacrifice to God to mark their passing and also to make yourself ceremonially clean. If you've been healed from some sort of debilitating illness, or uh, if you and your neighbor had just settled some argument or dispute on sacred days and festivals, <clears throat> these were the times when sacrifices were appropriate. Birth, death, healing, holy days, times, times when the space between human beings and God became small. Right? Those, those thin places, when God shows up in our lives in a unique way, that's when you'd offer a sacrifice at the temple as a means of expressing gratitude. So then, what do we make of all that talk in the New Testament about Jesus being a sacrifice for us? Our passage from Hebrews, where it says that like everything is purified by blood, and without blood there is no forgiveness of sins, how does that square with the Old Testament understanding of sacrifice. Well, in the context of sacrifice, the blood of the sacrificial animal is incredibly important. The blood is sacred. There's power in the blood of a sacrifice, and that power is crucial to understanding what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Remember, the Israelites would offer sacrifices in moments, moments when God drew near. And that's really important because drawing near to God is incredibly dangerous. I mean, think about any time in the Bible when someone draws near to God, when God like shows up literally in the presence of mortal human beings. Uh, uh, the burning bush, Mount Sinai, the call of Isaiah when Isaiah is, is ushered into the heavenly court, uh, or any time in the Bible when the angel of the Lord appears to a human being. What is the response, generally, if you know those stories? Pure terror, right? Yeah, uh, it's terrifying, and that's, that's because human beings are mortal and frail and sinful. And God is the ultimate power in the universe, the, the ultimate good, the ultimate holiness. To, to draw near to God is like drawing near to a freight train, right? Um, uh, th think, of, think of a movie like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, that scene toward the end when the Nazis open up the Ark of the Covenant and uh, they, their faces start melting and their heads start exploding. Great scene, by the way, classic movie. Uh, but... but that's what we're talking about. You've got to be careful with this stuff. 
when we think about the presence of God, we're talking about something dangerous, at least as the people in the, in the Old Testament understood it, because we are frail and sinful and mortal. But that's where the blood of the sacrifice comes into play. There is a purity and a holiness to the blood of a sacrificial animal. <clears throat> that's why the blood was sprinkled on the altar and on the priest and on the person who came to offer the sacrifice. It was like a holy detergent or a, a holy hand sanitizer. There's an image that we're all painfully aware of right now, right? Uh, think of it as a holy hand sanitizer, a cleansing agent meant to protect and to purify the worshiper so that they could stand in the presence of God without fear. In our scripture reading for today, the author of Hebrews describes the tabernacle, this giant tent that the Israelites carried around with them in the wilderness when they were following Moses for 40 years, served as a model for the temple in Jerusalem. The author of Hebrews talks about all the stuff that was in the, ta the tabernacle, like the, the altar, the Ark of the Covenant, Aaron's rod, the tablets with the Ten Commandments on it, so on and so forth. All of that was in this big tent. And it was also believed that God's presence dwelled at the center of the tabernacle as well. The way it was set up, you actually had like multiple spaces forming almost like, like concentric circles coming further and further out from God's presence to safety. So first in the tabernacle, you had the courtyard, uh, which is where the altar was located. <clears throat> then you had the holy place or the first tent, as it's called in Hebrews. That's a spot where the priests would do their work. Then beyond the holy place was the second tent or the most holy place, the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant rested. And that's where the Hebrews believed God's presence dwelled. The high priest would only go into the holy of holies once a year on the Day of Atonement, to offer a sacrifice that would cover any unintentional sins of the people. Uh, there was this thick curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Um, and the priests would burn a bunch of incense. They would fill the room with smoke. Then the high priest would actually tie like a rope around themselves before they'd go through the curtain. The other priest would be on the other side of that rope holding it to, to pull him out, you know, just in case he... He handled the sacrifice wrong and, and dropped dead because, you know, again, freight train, right? That's how much care the priests took when they'd offer sacrifices. <clears throat> That's why the blood of the sacrificial animal was so darn important. It's what protected the priests and the people who came to offer the sacrifices when they would stand in the presence of God. The author of Hebrews draws on that image of the, temp the tabernacle, the temple, to talk about Jesus, the ultimate high priest who through his death on the cross ascended into heaven to the heavenly temple, the real thing where God's presence actually dwells, and who sprinkles his own blood on the heavenly altar, purifying us once and for all and allowing mortal, imperfect human beings to stand in the presence of God without fear. See, the sacrifices of the temple, those were offered all year long, day after day, week after week. People would bring their animals, their rams, their bulls, what have you. The priests would sacrifice them, sprinkle the blood, prepare the feast over and over and over again. They had